I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hello, John. How are you today? I'm doing well. How about you? I am good, John. I am excited to dive into today's episode because today we are talking about one of my very favorite shows. For this episode, we are talking about Of Thee I Sing, with book by George S. Kaufman and Maury Riskind, music by George Gershwin, and lyrics by Ira Gershwin. The show opened on December 26th, 1931, and closed on January 14th, 1933, having run for 441 performances. Of the I Sing was staged by George S. Kaufman with dances by Chester Hale. Charles Previn, who you may know as Andre Previn's father, was the music director, and Robert Russell Bennett and William Daly provided the orchestrations. The original Broadway cast included William Gaxton as John P. Wintergreen, Lois Moran as Mary Turner, Grace Brinkley as Diana Devereaux, and Victor Moore as Alexander Throttlebottom. Of Thee I Sing was the first musical to be awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, but on the merits of its book, not its music, George Gershwin was specifically not credited in the award. Of Thee I Sing opens with a campaign parade for John P. Wintergreen, who has been nominated for president. A group of politicians gather in a hotel room to discuss what the nominee's platform should be. Eventually, Alexander Throttlebottom arrives. He's the nominee for vice president, but no one can remember who he is. After asking the chambermaid what she cares about, the group decides that they will run on a platform of love. To cinch the deal, they decide that they will hold a beauty pageant to find a beautiful girl for Wintergreen to fall in love with, Mary, and then be the next first lady. The pageant is held in Atlantic City. Many girls and reporters sing about how excited they are to see who is the lucky girl to be. Backstage, Wintergreen is getting nervous about marrying a girl he's never met. He talks to Mary Turner, a sensible young woman running the pageant. Wintergreen doesn't just want to marry someone because they're good looking. He wants someone who could make a good home for him and his children. Mary comforts him with corn muffins, and he instantly falls for her. He kisses her, confesses his love, and Mary agrees to marry him. Meanwhile, out in the pageant, the judges announce that Diana Devereaux, a beautiful Southern girl, has won the contest. However, Wintergreen comes out and declares his love for Mary. Everyone objects to this. After all, Diana won the pageant. But when Wintergreen shares Mary's muffins with the judges, they all agree that Wintergreen and Mary are to be wed. Love is sweeping the country as Wintergreen and Mary tour the nation to drum up votes. At each stop along the way, Wintergreen proposes to Mary and she accepts. Together, they sing the campaign song, Of Thee I Sing. Wintergreen wins the election in a landslide, and his inauguration and their wedding day is upon them. In his inaugural address, Wintergreen bids farewell to all of the girls he used to know. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presides over both the inauguration and the wedding ceremony. Just after he has pronounced Wintergreen and Mary as man and wife, 
Diana Devereaux arrives to interrupt the proceedings. She is there to sue Wintergreen for breach of promise. She insists that because she won the pageant, she should be his bride. The Supreme Court decides on the spot that Mary's corn muffins are more meritorious than Diana's win at the pageant and confirms the marriage of Wintergreen and Mary. Diana leaves to tell her story across the country as Act 1 ends. Act 2 begins with Wintergreen and Mary settling into their new life as President and First Lady. Meanwhile, the still-forgotten Throttlebottom sneaks into the White House as part of a tour group. He's informed by a tour guide that the Vice President presides over the Senate, and Throttlebottom dashes off to the Capitol. Party members are concerned about the support that Diana is garnering around the country. Wintergreen holds a press conference to announce that he doesn't care about Diana. He asks if anyone has questions about his policy decisions, but the reporters are only interested in talking about the scandal with Diana. Suddenly, the ambassador from France arrives, and he has a surprise for Wintergreen. Diana is the illegitimate daughter of an illegitimate son of an illegitimate nephew of Napoleon. The ambassador declares that if Wintergreen will not right the grievous injustice to one of France's daughters, it will leave France no choice but to declare war on America. Wintergreen refuses to leave Mary and marry Diana, and everyone agrees that he should be impeached for refusing to marry Diana. Wintergreen and Mary respond with, who cares? As long as they have each other, they'll be okay. Meanwhile, Throttlebottom has arrived at the Senate just in time to learn that he will soon be the president. He's very excited and takes roll call of the senators to get the impeachment hearings going. The French ambassador and Diana present their case against Wintergreen. The Senate is about to impeach Wintergreen when Mary runs in to inform everyone of the president's delicate condition. She is pregnant and Wintergreen is soon to be a father. The Senate having never impeached an expecting father, refuses to set that dangerous precedent. And Wintergreen declares that posterity is just around the corner. Diana and the French ambassador are outraged. Wintergreen has now robbed France of a child, and the ambassador demands Wintergreen's baby as a replacement as the one he has taken from France. He is firmly denied and the ambassador leaves. Flash forward to the day of Wintergreen and Mary's due date. Guests are arriving with gifts for the baby, and the Supreme Court awaits the birth to legally determine the sex of the baby. The French ambassador arrives to once again demand the baby, or else. The child is born, and it's ruled to be a boy. Then, another baby is born, this time a girl. The French ambassador is now twice as wounded by this whole affair. Diana also mourns what has happened. Just as the French ambassador is about to declare war, Wintergreen comes up with a solution. When the president is unable to fulfill his duties, it falls to the vice president to assume his obligations. The ambassador calls Wintergreen a genius, and the two eagerly pass Diana off to Throttlebottom, who is quite excited. Mary is brought into the room on a bed with her two babies, and Wintergreen leads the whole ensemble in one final rendition of his campaign song, Of the I Sing. This is ridiculous in one of the best possible ways. 
as I said at the start of this episode, this is one of my favorite shows. And it's one of my favorite shows because the style of this show just appeals to me greatly. It is outrageous. It is funny. And it is still really relevant in its satire, but we'll get to that in a little bit. First, I want to talk about the book because this is a musical from 1931. And the book is an integral part of this show. And it's not something you're going to hear when you just listen to the recording. Georges Kaufman's writing and Maury Raskin's writing in this book is outstanding. And it's very much in this sort of just post vaudeville style of just fast paced joke after joke after joke after joke. And it is just constantly hitting you. I, you know, if you want to get a sense of what the style of writing and the timing is like, check out the Marx Brothers film, uh, An Evening at the Opera. There's a great scene, you can see it on YouTube, where they're all cramming into this tiny little room on a boat. And people just keep coming in and they just keep letting them in. And literally every line in that scene is a punchline. There's no setups. It's just joke after joke after joke. And that kind of fast-paced humor is exactly what you see in Of the I Sing. Well, and it's something you see in the period as well. You brought up the Marx Brothers. You also had Abbott and Costello during the same time. Their famous who's on first routine is very much in that same vein. It's not set up then joke then set up then joke. It's punchline, 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 punchline part of the humor is not in just what they're saying. It's not in just what they're doing. It's how you're building a laugh on top of a laugh on top of a laugh. And that the book for this show is a masterclass in how to do that. It literally is punchline after punchline. There's not a moment of rest. There's not a moment of respite. It just keeps going and it's on the audience to keep up, which adds to the humor because let's be honest you called this plot a bit silly i feel like you're understating a bit honestly i feel like if you had pitched this plot to gilbert and sullivan who always will in my mind at least have that special pedestal of just beyond the pale silliness in their plots that on first glance they'd look at this and go okay no that's probably a little bit too out there but it works it's funny it's topical as you said back then and as we'll get into in a couple minutes it's still a little bit topical now but it shouldn't work it's too nonsensical it's too farcical but the genius of Kaufman's writing is that it does it, it totally does. And I just want to correct myself. The Marx Brothers film is a night at the opera, not an evening at the opera. And you can search crowded cabin scene and it'll pop up, give you a perfect example of what this kind of writing is like. But I also just want to quote a little bit of the book so that you can really get a sense of how fast paced it is. This is just from that first scene when Throttlebottle finally arrives to meet with the senators and he comes up to them and he goes, I don't want to be vice president. I want to resign. Why, you can't do that. That's treason. Absurd, sir. Why don't you want to be vice president? That's a good job. It's, it's on account of my mother. Suppose she found out. You've got a mother? Boys, he's got a mother. Well, this is a fine time to tell us. It just, it pivots. Again, it's just punchline after punchline. There's not another setup line. It's just kind of building this pyramid of humor. 
And that was an interaction between five different characters. I'm, you know, I, I can only do me. So it's just, it's bouncing all over the place and it is fast paced. And it is, I, at least for me, it's the kind of book that, as you said, it forces you as the audience member to keep up with it. And that is really engaging and entertaining f- from my perspective. I think we both can agree that the book for this show and the plot, as silly as it is, is exceptional. And in recognizing it, when it was awarded the Pulitzer Prize, it was incredibly deservedly so. However, what was less deservedly so was the fact that the Pulitzer Prize specifically acknowledged the book at the neglection of the music. And actually, when we were preparing for this and and you had run that factoid by me, I actually, I questioned it because I'm like, how, how? How is that not a thing? How is that not a thing? But the music in this show is, well, first of all, it's Gershwin. So it's going to be of high quality. But I believe that the music is a lot smarter than the Pulitzer folks really would give it credit for. It absolutely is. And it starts out right from the beginning being musically very clever. As we mentioned, the first scene is a depiction of a campaign rally and it's kind of a parade. And Wintergreen's campaign is at, in its infancy. And so they don't have a campaign song yet. And one of, you think, one of the things you hear in the first number is different little fragments of different campaign songs that would have been known to, to people in the 30s and are often still recognizable to us today. And that's just that depiction of the fact that we don't know what the campaign song is yet. It's bouncing all over the place. And so much of that is the Gershwin kind of style where he pulls together these fragments and out of it comes a whole. We see it in so many other of his songs as well. Though I am going to take this a little bit on a tangent. And also, I want to make it clear that as deserved as Kaufman's lauds are for this show there's someone that's kind of overlooked and that's Ira Gershwin. And I feel like that's kind of apropos of the entire Gershwin legacy. So you've got some of this iconic music from of the I sing and girl crazy. I've got rhythm, embraceable you of the I sing. These are all incredibly iconic songs that even as someone who is not well-versed in music theater would probably know them. And they're all credited to George Gershwin. Well, he wrote the music. I've never understood this concept of why Ira Gershwin is kind of overlooked in so much of this. His lyrics for this show are brilliant. Just hands down. You have three aspects to when you're writing a musical. You've got the music, obviously. You've got the book, which is just as important as the music. But you also have the lyrics for the music which in so many cases, and if you think about it throughout history, is always done by someone who's not writing the music. And we've got famous pairs in, in history. Rogers and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe, Pasek and Paul. Why do we never talk about the Gershwin brothers? Why is it always just George Gershwin and not George and Ira? That is a point very, very well made, though I will say that the Pulitzer's Prize did credit Ira. They just left out George. And I think uh, this is me getting anecdotal, but I'm fairly certain I'm remembering this correctly, that Ira, because of the slight to George, actually kept his Pulitzer in the bathroom from Of the Icing. 
if that's not family love, I don't know what is. So we talked about how the show still feels very timely and you can get really specific in certain lines or you can just take the broader political satire. Let's look at the fact that here we have a president who's marred by issues in his social life with refusing to marry Diana. And that's all the press wants to talk about. They don't want to hear about his policy decisions. They don't want to hear about the the actions he's taking. They just want to know, what are you doing about this issue with Diana Devereaux? I mean, that that's still very relevant today. There's a point when Diana shows up and is interrupting things. The chorus says, it's dirty tricks of Russia, a communistic plot. That still feels very relevant today. The show just, I mean, the style and the writing has aged, but the content still right up there in its relevancy. Well, I think that's ultimately one of the best compliments you can pay to a show. We've looked at some shows already in this podcast, and we'll look in the future at some shows that are from the 30s, the 40s, and 50s, and they have kind of a a dated feel to them. Like their message was relevant for the time, but not necessarily something that carried over into present day. I feel like it's a testament to Kaufman who wrote the book and the Gershwins who wrote the music and lyrics that this show as a whole is equally as relevant now than it was, you know, 80 years ago, 90 years ago now. It is both Remarkable, outstanding, and a little bit sad. I can't disagree with you on that one. So, you need to listen to Of the I Sing if you haven't yet. I'm going to say that you should check out the Orchestra of St. Luke's studio album with Michael Tilson Thomas conducting, simply because this is a really, really complete recording. You're going to get just about every second of music in that show, and it really does tell you a lot of the story in there, even without the brilliant book scenes that we have mentioned. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John, or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.